my wife and I, we enjoy maps. I don't know how many of you like maps. Uh, we, we have a number of maps. Um, we homeschool, that's part of the reason why, but we've always liked maps. I especially like road maps. So I'm old enough to remember the day that when you went on vacation, your father pulled over on the side of the road and pulled out a map to figure out how to get there. And he taught me how to read the map. And on the way, he had teach me about highway signs and interstate signs and all the rest. I remember that when I turned 16, he insisted that I always had a state map and a city map in my car. Lest I get lost anywhere, you can pull over and use the map. Um, GPS has changed the need for maps, that's obvious. And I think it's for the worst. Many of us, we don't know where anything is. We don't know how to get anywhere. If I were to say, look, I want you to go to Sam's Club northwest of here. It's north up Highway 41. It's west of I-75, and it's east of downtown Marietta. Some of you would think I would ask you to go on the Lewis and Clark expedition. I mean, it is that overwhelming because you're so dependent upon your GPS. A few years ago, my family and I, we were on the way to the beach, and it's about a six-hour trip to where we were going, and we had an hour left. We pulled over. I used the restroom, get some snacks, and I said, I got an idea. Let's use a map to go the rest of the way. It's only an hour away. It was two and four-lane highways and, you know, some, some back roads. This will be a lot of fun. You would have thought that I asked my family to walk the rest of the way. I mean, they were just, oh, there's no way we could do this. Maybe some other time. Admittedly, it wasn't a bright, you know, it wasn't the smartest thing. They're tired, they're, they're eager to get to the beach, so maybe some other time. But I like maps, I like them for a number of reasons. But the biggest one is because it puts everything into perspective. When you're looking at a map, you can see how one thing, one place is in relationship to another. And when you study a city map, you can understand and see why the city is kind of built up the way that it is. It gives us the bigger picture of things. It helps us put things into perspective and to begin to see them rightly. How do you put the last 10 months of your life into proper perspective? How do you get the big picture? How do you reorient what's a priority and what is not a priority with all that's gone on in the last 10 months? This last week marked the one year anniversary of the first COVID death in Wuhan, China. How do you put your life in perspective to a global pandemic. You've had a while to think about that now. This past week, we saw the president impeached twice, first time in U.S. history. The congressional resolution said that it was, quote, for incitement of insurrection. Well, how do we put the fragility of our democracy into perspective for our kids' future? What about your own personal struggles, relational conflicts or trials with loved ones? Sin patterns, your failing health, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires. The list just goes on and on. How do we begin to put all these pieces of life into proper perspective to gain the big picture? We have to remember who God is. We have to have a big view of God. We need to reclaim and reorient our hearts and our minds to a proper doctrine of who God is, recognizing that there is no one else like our God. You're not like our God, your spouse, your family, our earthly rulers. No one is like the Lord our God. 
the broken pieces of life and our fearful anxieties about the future are put into proper perspective when we put them in proper relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Psalm 113 is going to help us do today. Psalm 113, I take, is a, is a gift from God, like all of Scripture, but especially on this day that we are in it by His providence, and I pray that it is encouraging and you see it as a gift from God as well to help you put your life back into proper perspective, whatever may be going on personally and obviously what's going on in the world around us. So if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. It's a short psalm. It's only nine verses. And follow along as I read Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113, I think it teaches us one idea, one main thing, and that is that the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is to be praised. And why is he to be praised? Well, for he alone is the all-powerful ruler of the world and lifter of his people. We are given one command, and that is to praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he alone is the all-powerful ruler of the world and lifter of his people. We all come today with different responsibilities and different relationships that may be on our minds. And I pray that just for the next few moments that we can set those things aside and have great and glorious thoughts about our great God, who is also our great comforter, our great lifter, and that we look to him by faith and look and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to think about three things today from Psalm 113. Three things from Psalm 113. Number one, we are to praise the Lord forever. We are to praise the Lord forever. Verses 1 through 3 again. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And then the end of verse 9, praise the Lord. Sometimes we have to reprioritize things in life. Uh, it often happens at the beginning of the year with New Year's resolutions. I've seen uh, different people saying they're taking a break from social media in order to you know, reprioritize and, and give proper attention to relationships and other things that they have going on. You know, if a team is not performing well, if they kind of go through a streak of not performing well, the coach may say, guys, we're going to take this next week of practice and we're just going to work on the fundamentals. We're going to work on fundamentals and conditioning. So uh, I've got a couple of kids that play soccer. I played soccer growing up and still play a little bit. Working on the fundamentals. We're going to work on first touches, passing defeat. We're going to work on communication, and we're going to do a lot of conditioning. We're going to run because we need to get back in proper form. Well, what do we as Christians do in order to get back in proper form, to help reprioritize things in life? Well, we have to fundamentally stop looking and thinking less about ourselves and the things of this world 
and thinking more about the Lord. We have to start thinking less about ourselves and more of the Lord. And we do that with praise. It begins with praise. Praising the name of the Lord focuses our hearts and it focuses our minds on Him. It kind of declutters everything. All the stuff that's filling our minds from our social media or news feeds or just things that's going on. We have to take time to praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 113 through 118 are called the Egyptian Ha'els. In other words, these are the Egyptian praises. That's what Ha'el means. It simply means praise. These were psalms that were, and even are today, sung and read during Passover. So Psalm 113 and 114 are sung or read before the Passover meal. And then the rest of the psalms, Psalm 115 through 118, they are sung after the Passover meal. And they're done to remember what God has done and to lift up his name in bringing Israel out of the Exodus, or out of Egypt in the Exodus. You see it in Psalm 114, verse 1. It says, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, that being the Egyptians, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel, his dominion. And so in the New Testament accounts of Jesus and his disciples, there at the Passover meal, it says that when they had sung a hymn, they went out. And you may think, well, what hymn did they sing? Well, this is it. These were the, the psalms, the hymns that they would have sung uh, as they observed Passover and before Jesus was going out to be betrayed by Judas and handed over to be delivered on a cross. And you can't help but think as Jesus is leading his disciples in taking the Passover and in singing these psalms, this psalm has to come to his mind. Uh, or the, 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 this instruction, praise the name of the Lord. Everything that is transpiring right now in this moment of me leading the disciples in Passover and me telling Peter of how he's going to forsake me and deny me three times, of me knowing that Judas is about to hand me over to be delivered to the Roman soldiers, all of this is transpiring so that my name might be praised. This was the psalm that was on the lips of our Lord and Savior before all the events of his crucifixion began to unfold by God's plan, and it was to the praise of his name. That's the only command that we find here. You see, praise the Lord. You see it three times in verse 1, just to emphasize the importance of it. Uh, the psalmist concludes again in verse 9 with it, just to bring us back after we've thought about who God is, of how no one else is like him, what's the proper response, but again to praise the name of the Lord. Uh, verses 2 through 3, they, they mirror one another. They parallel one another, beginning with, bless the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. There's not any difference. Some translations say praise is to be to the name of the Lord. It's commanded specifically of God's people. That's what he means there in verse 2, talking about the servants of the Lord. It's to be unending from this time forth and forevermore. What are God's people to be doing and what will they be doing? They'll be praising the name of the Lord. And it's to be global, from the rising of the sun to its setting. As the sun rises in the east and as it sets in the west, so God's praise is to be throughout all nations. But what exactly does it mean to praise the name of the Lord? It's Tuesday night. You've had a long day at work. You're lonely. You're frustrated. And you think, as a Christian, I know my attitude right now is not what it's supposed to be. 
I want to put life back into proper perspective in light of all that's going on. I need to praise the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, as I've sought to reflect on the Psalms, specifically these Psalms, verses, or Psalm 113 through 118, and just the Psalms in general, here's how I would put it. To praise in the name of the Lord is the resolved and glad-hearted declaration. It is the resolved and glad-hearted declaration that the personal, self-sufficient, self-existent, eternal, and unchanging Lord reigns forever. Praise is the resolved and glad-hearted declaration that the personal, self-sufficient, self-existent, eternal, and unchanging Lord reigns forever. Praise is to come from the heart, the place that motivates our will and our emotions and, and our desires and affections. All of this comes from the heart, and that's where praise is to come from. We resolve in our heart to trust the Lord. That's what we do as God's people. We resolve to trust Him for His greatness, for His steadfast love to us. So Psalm 86, uh, verses 12 through 13 say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. Praise is to be done with our words. God's people use their mouths to praise the Lord. It can be done in singing. It can be done in prayer. It can be done simply by stating something that is true about God. We make these declarations with our mouths to one another. We do it individually. We do it corporately when we gather, that there are things that are true about God that are not true about us. And the goal of doing this is to ascribe worth. It is to ascribe glory to Him. It's not due to us. I love how Jude ends, reflecting on how great God and Lord and Savior we have in keeping us in the faith in all dominion, all glory, honor is to his name. Psalm 115, you can just look down there, beginning in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Praise is also declaring that God is God and that he reigns as king. Our praise declares things that are true about God and not true about us. We are constantly reminding ourselves of how we are in need of Him. So when it says that we're to praise the name of the Lord, a number of things are supposed to come to mind when you think about the name of the Lord, of who He is as God. He's self-sufficient. We're not self-sufficient. When we praise the name of the Lord, we remember that the Lord is, and thus we are always dependent on Him. He's unchanging. And so whatever else is going on, and wherever anyone else may be unfaithful, God is unchanging, thus He's always faithful, and you can always trust Him. When we sing, as Ricky exhorted us to do today, rejoice the Lord is King. When we are proclaiming the Lord is King, that motivates us to rejoice. Why? Because we're not King. Where everything else seems out of control, we can rest and we can rejoice that the Lord is king and he is in control of everything. Jesus Christ is reigning. So what do we need to do more of this week? We need to praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do as God's people. 
Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, that being through Jesus, then let us, let us as God's people, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What's that sacrifice look like? Well, he tells us. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. His name being Jesus Christ. Let us, as God's people, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So this week, find ways in which you can praise the Lord in singing and prayer and just simply stating a truth about who God is in your own heart and mind and to others. That's what we're commanded to do, and that's what we will do forever. Second, the Lord is highly exalted King of the world. The second thing that the psalm teaches us is that the Lord is the highly exalted King of the world. Look again at verses 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? Verse 5 has to be one of the most provocative questions in all of Scripture. Who is like the Lord our God? The question of who's the goat, who's the greatest of all times, it's applicable to athletes. It's not applicable to God. There is no rival comparison to our great God. There's none like him. Last week we, we thought about Isaiah 40. If you're in the joint Sunday school, uh, Jeffrey Timmons was here leading us and helping us think about Isaiah for life, its relevance. And he used Isaiah 40 as a window into the, the larger book. And in that chapter, you find the most extended treatment of this very question. Who is like the Lord our God? And one of the things that you see is that Israel failed over and over to trust the Lord, thinking that there was some other power, some other nation, some heavenly host, some other idol by which they can, put their, they can place their faith and their trust. And in, in Israel, or the Lord comes to Israel through the prophet Isaiah and says, there is none other like me. And so they may have sung Psalm 113 as they were observing the Passover during that time, oh, but they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it at all. And so the Lord told them in Isaiah 40 and 41, to whom then will you compare me? Then I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who has performed and done this, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. I am he. There is no one else to whom we can compare the Lord. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, very thankful that you're here. This is one of the fundamental questions you need to wrestle with in thinking about Christianity. I don't know what's going on in your life and why you're here to church, hearing the Bible taught and thinking through Christianity or the claims of the Bible. But this is one of the basic questions you have to wrestle with. You're surrounded by a group of people that actually believe that Jesus is God. That he made you to know him and to love him and to worship him and obey him. That when you die, you'll have to give an account for the way in which you lived to Jesus as God. And unless you've turned from your sins and placed your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, then you will experience eternal death under the wrath of God an eternal conscious punishment for your sin. That's what we believe as a church. That's the good news of Christianity, that Jesus came and died on the cross so that we would not have to experience that eternal 
and that eternal wrath, but have eternal life with him. And one of the questions that we had to wrestle with at one point and that you have to wrestle with is, is there anyone else like Jesus Christ? Is there any other religious leader like Jesus Christ? The New Testament Gospels, they are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' ministry on earth, his teaching, his dealings with people, his death, and even his resurrection. And one of the things that you find over and over is when these crowds of first century Jews encountered Jesus' teachings and his miracles, they were astonished. They didn't understand how this man whom they know, they, they knew where he's from, from Nazareth, knew what he did as a side job, he was a carpenter. How was it that he had the authority to do the things in which he did? And so you get to the end of the, the famous Sermon on the Mount, the one where you, you find, you know, to turn the other cheek and to, to love your enemies, the one where we're told not to judge others. You get to the end of it, and it records that the crowds were astonished because, quote, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In other words, they had heard their religious teachers, their, their scribes, teaching all the long, all, all the time. But when they heard Jesus teaching, they said, there's something different. There's an authority there that we've never seen before. And so you need to ask yourself, why was that? As you read the gospel accounts, which I encourage you to do, you need to ask yourself, how is it that Jesus has the authority to say and to do the things that he did? Is he just like any other religious teacher, or is he like no other? Because he is God. We believe he is God, that he is Lord, and that you can trust him. The point of verses 4 through 6 is to say that there is no one like our God, for he is the highly exalted king of the world. So the language here is describing the Lord in terms of location. Notice it says that he is what? He is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. So it's not below, it's above it. He is seated where? He's not seated on earth, he is seated on high. His place in which he is seated, he's so high it says that he has to look not simply down, but he has to look far down. He has to like peer down over the edge and not to just simply see the earth, but to see heaven itself. That's how high up he is. Now, the point is not to say that the psalmist is describing where the Lord is, that physically where he is, not putting some like remote, inaccessible location that we can't go to. No, this is to say that the Lord and no one else is exalted ruler of the world. This is kingly language describing his lordship, his absolute power and sovereignty over everything. So this is often how the Psalms describe the Lord's transcendence. Uh, Psalm 123 verse 1 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So the, the psalmist, he's, he's not looking up to kind of figure out, can I see through the clouds and see God? No, he's, he's looking up to acknowledge how he is enthroned as king over the entire universe. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Well, because he's in the heavens, because he is enthroned there, then it is his prerogative 
And he has the capacity and the competency to do everything that he pleases. God is the highly exalted king of the world. He does all that he wills by his power and for his glory. And that includes the affairs of nations. Notice in verse 4 it says that the Lord is high above all nations. If you've been at Mount Vernon, you don't have to be here very long to know that we never change our sermon series. And, and until COVID and my 12 years of being here, they've been printed, they've been in the, the pew racks in front of you. And until COVID, I can't think of another time in which we changed the series. And um, that includes today. So in the middle of December, Aaron said, would you like to preach? Gave me a couple of dates. I said, I'll take the January 17th date. He said, do you want to pick a text? And I said, I don't have time. He said, okay, will you preach Psalm 113? And that's where we are in God's providence. But where does that mean we are in God's providence? Well, for one, I'm one of the pastors standing up here preaching this text and not Dustin or some other pastor. But it also means that we are just days after the affairs and the events in our nation's capital. And we are days before one of the most contentious transfer of presidential powers in our nation's modern history. And we are in a passage that is addressing God's sovereign rule and reign over the nations. So as a pastor, I want to try to shepherd you into thinking about these things. I want to, as I said earlier, put life into proper perspective in the most recent political events in light of God's sovereign kingship over everything. And again, in God's providence, I'm the one that's here. If David or Pat or anybody else wants to jump up here and do this, you're welcome to. But I want to give you some, some pastoral thoughts and reflections. Now, before I do so, you need to know that these comments, they're not exhaustive. I'm not saying everything that one can or should say about any of this, uh, nor am I trying to discourage any type of political conversation or involvement. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that that's not something we, we seek to do, to seek to discourage anyway. Nor do I want you to hear me say anything less than that I am thankful to be a Christian living in the United States. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And to those who have or do lead or serve or who have fought for our nation's freedoms, I thank you and I thank God for you. So keep all that in mind as I make these comments. But I want to give you five brief pastoral theological reflections about God's sovereignty over the nations in light of the recent events. Number one, the Lord reigns forever, not earthly rulers. The Lord reigns forever, not earthly rulers. One of the things that Psalm 113 does is it helps us to focus on the eternal and not the temporal. Governors, legislators, presidents, cabinet secretaries, justices, they come and they go. They come and they go. And it's not simply because some of them have term limits. This is the way God orders the affairs of nations. From Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to George Washington to Donald Trump to Joe Biden, none will last. They may legislate or govern in a way that significantly alters our short lives. But it won't last forever. Their reign will not last forever. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect reign will last forever. Number two, a nation's plan 
including the American experiment, will endure only as the Lord has determined. A nation's plan, including the American experiment, will endure only as long as the Lord has determined. America is not promised that it will endure as the most powerful and freest nation. It's not given that promise. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and so many others all experience crushing defeat. The Lord has thwarted the plans of the most powerful governments in history. And the same can happen to the American experiment and the U.S. Constitution. Speaking of Assyria and Isaiah and how the Lord used Assyria to bring judgment upon the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel, it says in Isaiah 14, 24-7, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian. This is the purpose that is purposed according, concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? A nation's plan only endures as long as the Lord has purposed it to. Number three, the Lord controls our nation's affairs in history to accomplish his purposes. The Lord controls our nation's affairs in history to accomplish his purposes. Look, there is much that I do not know and understand about the election, about the protest, about riots. I try to read reliable sources from the left and from the right, and I try to think Christianly about them. And even though I do not understand the specific purposes and all that's happened, I do know that the Lord is in control and that he is accomplishing his purpose of salvation and judgment through it all. That much I do know. God always uses the affairs of nations to accomplish his purpose. Just consider, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Why? For your salvation. That's what God did. That's what he foreordained. And through what means? Uh, the greed of a corrupted treasurer, Judas. The bias of Jewish councils. The fear of man from a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And the inhumane judicial execution of a Roman cross. God used all of these affairs to lift up Jesus on the cross for your salvation. And so there is no question that the Lord will accomplish his purpose through our nation. And regardless of what becomes of our nation. Number four, a day is coming when our nation and its rulers will be judged by the Lord Jesus for all that has happened. A day is coming when our nation and its rulers will be judged by the Lord Jesus for all that's happened. From every racist motive and action to every lie and proclamation of narcissism and to every excuse one makes for these sins, they will all be held accountable on the day of judgment. No political party will be excused because they have the majority vote. In Psalm chapter 2, which I encourage you to read and reflect on, David asked the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth and rulers rise up against whom? Against the Lord and his anointed. Why do they do it? It's in vain. 
nothing can come of it. And he goes on to talk about this, and then he ends with a warning. That they need to walk in the fear of the Lord because the wrath of the Lord and the wrath of his anointed king is coming. It concludes in chapter 10, or chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, and that is his anointed son, who's king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Fifth and lastly, our eternal security, speaking to Christians particularly right now, our eternal security and hope is in the kingdom of God, not our nation's democracy. Our eternal security and hope is in the kingdom of God, not our nation's democracy. I trust, like many of you, were appalled to see flags being waved that said, Jesus 2020. Regardless of whether or not there was a riot, I think it's appalling, even if it was at a protest or a political rally. Christian nationalism is the thing of Islam. It's not the thing of biblical Christianity. Life in Jesus' kingdom is not enshrined in the constitutional statutes of our nation. His throne is not in the U.S. Capitol or the White House. His citizens do not ultimately bear allegiance to this nation or any other earthly nation. Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It's global. It's coming in all of its glory, in all of its beauty, in all of its power and might. And as his citizens, that's where our hope and our eternal security lies. When you get to the end of the book of Hebrews, this unknown author is, is writing to a group, a group of Christians that are discouraged, they've experienced persecution, and they're looking for hope. They're looking for security. And he nearly ends the book by saying this in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city. Just think back to the affairs over the last 10 months, but especially over the last week. Here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. There is a heavenly city coming, and that's the one we seek. We just sang, mine are keys to Zion city, where beside the king I walk. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. You have keys to that city, and one day you will walk with your Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ. I make these comments, I don't make them lightly or to be pessimistic. I, I'm discouraged about things and events in our nation, but I'm not fearful. I promise you, I'm not fearful, and I pray that you are not fearful. And I pray that things have not robbed you of your joy. As a Christian, you should not be fearful, and you should not lose your joy. Psalm 113 tells us to praise the name of the Lord, which is what? The resolved and glad-hearted declaration that Jesus Christ is King. We have much to rejoice in today. There is no other like him. Number three, the third thing that we learn from Psalm 13, the Lord humbly condescends to care for his people. The Lord humbly condescends to care for his people. Look again at verse seven. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. 
when you understand just how highly exalted God is, and I tried in, in my feeble attempt, I tried to lead us in thinking just how highly exalted God is. And when you can get there, you cannot simply be amazed and ask the question, who is like the Lord our God in his exaltation, in his transcendence? But you also begin to be amazed at his grace to condescend to love and to care for you, his child. Think about it. The one who created and rules over all things intimately cares for you personally. This is what David, he, he couldn't fathom. In, in Psalm 8, when we reflected on the Lord's glory that was set above the heaven, and he began to just consider the cosmos and all of God's glory in creation, he did not understand how the Lord could care for him. How could he care for mankind? So he asked, when I look at your heavens, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? In other words, how, how am I worthy of your care and attention when you're giving it to the cosmos? Who is like the Lord our God who sovereignly rules and reigns and yet simultaneously cares for his children as though they are the only one he has to care for? I'm the father of, of four kids, ages nearly 16 down to, to 10 and a half. And they're not all the same. I got three girls and a boy. God's made them with different gifts and different personalities, with different struggles and interests. And um, in parenting, as many of you will know, there's much that is equally applicable to every child. So a child who's at a different season of life proceeds to, to ask for something that the older child is getting. We say, sorry, you're just not old enough yet. When you get there, then you can have that thing. That's just the way parenting is. And it kind of has to be when you have four or else it's just, it can be chaos. Um, but at times I cannot parent each child as though they are equally the same. I have to recognize how God has made them differently. And so I have to give special care and attention to the child that's right in front of me and whatever is going on in their life and, and in their hearts and in their minds. I have to give them the type of care, though I may fail, but as though they are the only child that I'm responsible for. God doesn't have to try to do this. God does do this. He cares for you that personally as though you are the only child to whom he is responsible for, for whom he is responsible for. He humbly condescends to care and to exalt each individual child of his. That's what we see in these verses. In verses 7 through 8, it describes God's humble condescension for the, for the poor and needy. They have no means to provide for themselves. If you've ever been financially distraught, you know how vulnerable and exposed you feel, how helpless you feel. That's what God is describing here. They're in such an impoverished state that they are in the dust. They're in the, the ash heap. And what does God do for them? From this highly exalted place, he stoops down. He bends down, he peers through the heavens, and he reaches down with the right hand, not to crush them, oh, but to, to lay, raise them up, to then sit them with princes, princes of the people. He raises them to an exalted position where they know privilege and status of, of wealth and, and power. They didn't know that in the ashes and in the dust. But when God cares for them, that's what they know. They're made rich in him. In verse 9, God humbly condescends to care for the barren woman. 
a barren Israelite woman, she was a disgrace to herself, to her husband, and to her community. Her sense of worth was tied directly to her ability to have children. Um, unlike today, having children wasn't just a matter of personal desire. There's a certain community obligation and expectation that the, the, the commands of the Lord would be carried on and passed down to future generations through childbearing. She would have recognized that her nation's history was carried along through God fulfilling His promise to give particular women the gift of children. And so she was a downtrodden woman to be, a, a barren woman was very downtrodden. Hannah, Samuel's mother, is a wonderful example of what this looked like in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, the book describes what she was like and how she cried out to the Lord. It says that she wept and would not eat. She was sad in heart. That she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She was afflicted and troubled in spirit. She suspected that others would think that she was, quote-unquote, a worthless woman. Hannah was a downtrodden and broken woman. And did God care for her? Absolutely. He cared for her. He heard her prayers. He gave her the gift of children and given her Samuel. And verse 8 is actually taken directly from Hannah's prayer, where it talks about how God, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. Hannah knew what it was like to be exalted to this new status when she was given the gift of children. That's how much God cared for her. And so the psalmist takes these words from Hannah's prayer. But verse 9, it's not just about God providing children. It is that ultimately that the Lord is like no other. He humbly condescends to care and to provide for his children, to give them family, to give them joy, to make them whole, and to make them complete in him. This really is the story of the gospel, isn't it? We are poor and needy sinners. We have nothing to bring, and yet God in his great love condescended to exalt us and to make us rich in Jesus Christ. When Jesus teaches his disciples in that famous Sermon on the Mount about life in the kingdom of God, he says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the account records Jesus sitting down on top of the mountain with his disciples, and you want to know, he's going to teach them about the kingdom of God. And what's the very first thing he's going to tell them? It's this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, if you want to know about life in the kingdom, the very first thing that you need to learn is that you are so spiritually bankrupt, there is nothing that you can do to earn it or to buy it. You have to go to God by faith in order to get it. You have to humble yourself before him. God, in his great love, condescended to make you rich in Christ. But if you're going to receive those riches, if you're going to receive that wonderful rich gift of eternal life in him, you have to humble yourself and say, God, I have nothing to bring. I am bankrupt. I am poor. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christian, today, praise God for his grace in making you rich with eternal life. This is what Christ has done for you. He became poor so that you could become rich in eternal life. 
We need to conclude, but before we do, I want to give one final application, and I would be um, uh, remiss not to address couples, as I prayed for, that struggle to have children. It's not often that we're in a text that just deals with it so directly, and so I want to, I want to seek to care and shepherd you through it. I want you to be reassured of God's intimate and personal care for you. God knows you. He knows your desire. He knows your need, and He has not forgotten you. You can be reassured of it. So let me give you some things to think about. First, the Lord hears your cries and prayers. The Lord hears your cries and prayers. Crying out to the Lord is an exercise of faith, and it's not in vain. If God were like anyone else, unreliable at times, unable to fully provide everything that we desire, well, then your crying out and your prayers would be in vain. But God's not like anyone else. He perfectly cares for you. He intimately cares and can provide. So I encourage you to lament, and I encourage you to pray. It's not in vain. Also know that your worth as an individual and your worth as a Christian is not in your ability to have children. Your worth as an individual and as a Christian is not in your ability to have children. Children are a wonderful gift from the Lord, but they are not your identity. Your identity is being made in the image of God, and if you're a Christian, it's being remade into the image of Christ. And so your worth comes from that reality. Your eternal worth, it comes from the label, as, as Danny Sanderson said today in Sunday school, from the label child of God. That's who you are. The label child of God gives you worth, not parent of child. It's that you are a child of God. Third, remember that <clears throat> these reminders that the, children, the, the gift of children is being withheld from you, the reminders that the gift of children is being withheld from you is an opportunity to desire the greater gift of eternal life. Every birth announcement, every gender reveal party, every baby shower, and friends that upgrade minivans because they need more room for their kids is a painful reminder that God is withholding a gift from you. And it may be for a season or it may be for a lifetime. Regardless, you know that the Lord cares and let these reminders foster a greater desire for the gift that he has not withheld from you, life with his son. That's a gift he has not and never will withhold from you. We need to conclude. <clears throat> Since March of 2020, we've seen a global pandemic and national economic shutdown. We've seen protests and riots over racism and the integrity of our democratic process. We've seen a president impeached for a second time and only the Lord knows what the events of the future, including this week, are in store. It would be enough to experience these in a lifetime. We've experienced them in 10 months. I'm not going to go through that list again, but just think about it. It would be enough to experience these in a lifetime, but we've gone through them in 10 months. I feel my limitations. I've sensed that in, even in my closest personal relationships, the strain that these events have brought on. I'm thankful for Psalm 113. It helps me put life back into perspective. 
it gives me a big picture that there is no one like the Lord our God, highly exalted king of the world and lifter of his people. Remember that today and let's praise his name for it. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly father, we come to you as your people, as we are commanded to praise your name. We pray that we would be resolved and glad-hearted that there is no other God like you who is the sovereign ruler over the entire world and who is the lifter of your people. We thank you for the way that you have condescended in the person of Jesus Christ to come and take on flesh to give us the riches of eternal life with him. We pray that our hope and our security, that our worth and our identity would be in him today. Help us to praise your name from this day forth and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.